Hey, my name's Matt Kennedy, and this is the Steadfast Podcast. This podcast exists to use Bible study and theological teaching to encourage you to be steadfast in your faith. Thank you for taking time out of your day to check out the Steadfast Podcast. I hope today's episode is an encouragement to you. Last week, we saw how Jesus gave his disciples a master class on prayer. He taught them what to say when they pray, how to pray, and why they should pray in the first place. In today's episode, we are going to see Jesus put a smidge of his power on display. Now, in reality, what we're about to see is truly small potatoes to Jesus, who is the master, the creator, and the sustainer of all the universe. Yet it's huge to us. It's something that we would have a hard time putting words into place to describe what's happening. And in today's passage, we're going to see a wide range of reactions to what Jesus is doing. And through all of this, we're going to get just a little bit of a glimpse into the spiritual realm. So today we are continuing in Luke chapter 11. Now the first point I want you to see is that Jesus is truly awe-inspiring. Yet some are going to be critical and some are going to be skeptical. But the point being, Jesus is truly awe-inspiring. Let's pick up Luke chapter 11, starting in verse 14. Now he was casting out a demon that was mute. When the demon had gone out, the mute man spoke, and the people marveled. But some of them said, He cast out demons by Beelzebul, the prince of demons. While others, to test him, kept seeking from him a sign from heaven. End quote. So the thing that Jesus did here that is truly awe-inspiring is that he cast out a demon that was causing a man to be unable to speak. So when the demon was gone, the man could speak. That's nothing to Jesus. But can you imagine how wild of a thing that would be to witness? I've never seen someone cast a demon out before. I've never seen someone who was plagued by a demon to the point of being mute and then someone just simply casting out that demon and then that person be able to speak again. I can't imagine what that would be like, but I would imagine that it would be something that would be hard to wrap my mind around. Now, in this event, we really see three groups of people that have very different reactions to this. The first group of people are the ones who are right, right? They're the awestruck ones. Their minds are blown. They've never seen anything like Jesus before. Now that they've seen the work and the power of Jesus, they are filled with awe. This is the right spot to be in. When we understand Jesus clearly, or at least clear enough, like the image is starting to gain some clarity, we should be in awe of him. I mean, the demons fear him. Who could possibly be so great that the demons fear him so? I think this is a way of thinking we sometimes forget about. Jesus, who is who all of history points to. He was there at the point of creation, and to this day holds every detail of creation together. He is everything, and he is certainly worth us being awestruck by him. And isn't that the heart of worship? To be amazed, to be awestruck, to be filled with wonder at who God is and what God can do, how he has pursued us, how he has saved us. 
It is an incredible thing to know that the one who made the stars, who named them, also wanted you in his family enough that he moved history, he moved earth in a way that you could hear the gospel, that you could believe in the gospel, and you could become a child of God. I know we've heard this before, and maybe we've heard it so many times it's become almost like static white noise, but let me tell you, you should be awe-inspired at the great links in which our creator and sustainer God went through through so that you could know him. The people who are awe-inspired by what Jesus is doing, they're right. It is pretty common in the New Testament to see folks who are totally in awe at the power of Jesus. But one thing that jumps out about this event is that not everyone is in awe. Actually, there are some really different reactions to Jesus casting out this demon. So the first group of people were awestruck. But now the second group of people that were there were critical. You see, some people are just critical. It might be shocking to you, but a critical spirit is not a new thing. The people here in this passage, they're saying Beelzebul, the prince of demons, is giving Jesus power to get rid of demons. This is going to be a lot easier for you if you are reading along in your Bible as we go through this. But if you're in your car, Reading and driving is definitely frowned upon. Don't do that. I remember when I was in high school, there was a, a football coach who could read a newspaper as he drove his van at the same time. Now, to this day, I do not know how he saw through or around or over or whatever the newspaper, but he did. But still, don't be like the coach. I want to spell out the words if you can't read along. Okay? Now, Beelzebul. So what we see here is it starts with the letters B. E-E-L. And that is the same word as B-A-A-L. It's Hebrew for Lord or Master. Zebul, or Z-E-B-U-L, is a Hebrew word, which is for like house. So Beelzebul just means Lord of the house. It's another name for Satan. Now, where the name came from isn't totally clear. Maybe it's a reference to he's Lord of the house of evil, house of darkness. He's the leader of the kingdom of darkness. But oddly enough, it's also just one letter off from Lord of Flies, Beelzebub. So if you switch out the L with a B, you get Beelzebub, which is Lord of Flies, a false god that shows up in the Old Testament. Now, when we say false god, we are, of course, talking about God little g. But he is listed as the god of Ekron in 2 Kings chapter 1. In my view, when we see the similarity between Beelzebul and Beelzebub, that should really raise some questions for us on whether false gods in the Old Testament, were they like statues, created things, or was there actually a demonic or satanic force behind them? So when we're talking about the god of Ekron, are we talking about Satan himself appearing to these people and being worshipped by these people? That might be a rabbit hole for another day, but it is definitely something that I think is worth considering. Back to our passage today. It takes a pretty critical spirit to call someone Satan, any way you cut it. But critical spirits don't have to be that dramatic. Those with a critical spirit are not always concerned about what's true. If you find yourself needing to just put stuff down to insult things for the fun of it or because it makes you feel better, then you got to ask yourself, why is it like that? 
Now, I know this happens a lot when something is new, something's uncomfortable, or maybe it's just not hitting our preferences. Maybe someone has thoughts, they have ideas that don't line up with yours. You can't really engage with them on an intellectual level, so you just put them down. I think this is something that both liberals and conservatives alike are very guilty of. Often people talk past one another. Instead of engaging actual ideas, they just seek to make fun of the other people. Maybe even create tropes of the other people to try to make them seem as ridiculous as possible. Let us not be this critical. We cannot be a people who use our words to tear others down. If it's a matter of the heart, what's in the heart will spill out of the mouth. If there is poison of a critical spirit in the heart, that is going to be a poison that will come out your mouth. James chapter 3 verse 10, quote, From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so, end quote. Some need to ask God to work on their critical spirit. Ask Him what needs healing. Ask them what is the source inside of them that is overflowing out their mouth that is this critical spirit. What is the thing that has to be healed? Ask Him to help us speak life and encouragement into the lives of those who are around us and not curses. Before we move on here, let's make sure we understand the difference in offering a critique and having a critical spirit. Some things in life do need to be called out and have attention brought to them. False teaching, oppression, mistreatment of others, someone actually pulling for the Chicago Bears. Those critiques are right and good, but the intention of those critiques should be to bring about good, to not tear down, but actually to build up, to see something that is not the way it ought to be and say, hey, we need to change this for good. Wanting someone's good could mean critique is necessary. Not all critique is bad. We just need to make sure that's our actual goal. Calling someone Satan, as we see in this passage, is not a well-intended critique. It is not seeking good. It is seeking to discredit, to tear down. Let the listener understand the difference of heart here. Like so many things, this comes down to the motivations of the heart. For those calling Jesus Satan, the motivation of their heart is not something to celebrate. And I'm afraid so many of our critiques are not out of actually wanting good, but of actually out of the desire or maybe a consequence of something that has gone unhealed that causes us to want to push others down. So there's those who are awestruck. There are those who are critical. Then there's one last group, the skeptical. They just want Jesus to keep doing cool miracles. They're not sold yet. But here's the thing. It says they want to test him. So the issue is not about having questions. Because if you remember from a previous episode, I'm a big fan of questions. I'm a big fan of voicing doubts. I believe those things can be a catalyst to a greater faith. But again, we are left with the motivation of the heart. Where are the questions coming from? Where are the doubts coming from? Where is their skepticism coming from? For this group, they just don't believe. And the truth is, another miracle or another demon being cast out is not going to change that. It's not a matter of getting a question answered or a doubt addressed because they're not looking for the truth. They're not open to the truth. Their skepticism has way more to do with the hardness of their heart than anything else, meaning their heart's closed off to God. They're not caring about actually seeing something to convince them, to make them believe. They just want to be skeptical. 
That can come from disappointment, hard times, pride, even prosperity. All those things can lead us to just not being open to who God is or what God is doing. The thought can be, God didn't do what I wanted him to, so I'm not really concerned with what he wants. Or on the other end, I'm doing just fine on my own. What do I need God for if I'm doing so well? Now, listener, we can hear the problems with both of those things, right? For the first remark, we got to know God has the knowledge. He has the perspective to always do right, and we don't. So there is good reason, even if we can't see it, why he didn't do what we wanted him to do when we wanted it. And besides, and I really don't want to sound callous here, but he is the potter and we are the clay. He has every right to do as he will. If he does something that we do not want, I understand that can be disappointing, that can be frustrating, that can be confusing, but at the end of the day, he is God and we are not. Now for the second remark, the ones who think they're doing just fine, let us remember that every good gift is from God. Without him, you wouldn't be doing well. I know you can lean on your solid work ethic. You talk about your intelligence, your skills, your responsible nature, anything and everything you can hang your hat on. But let me tell you that all of those things are the grace of God and they are gifts from him. You're not responsible because you're awesome. You're not one with good work ethic just because you're great. You are responsible with a good work ethic if you have those things because God wired you with them. It was by the grace of God you were given those things, not by your awesome nature. Really, they are given to you in spite of your nature. We need God every minute of every day. We're going to move on to verse 17. And starting in verse 17, we can see our second point for the day. Jesus brings the kingdom of God. Verse 17, quote, But he, knowing their thoughts, said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and a divided household falls. And if Satan also is divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? For you say that I cast out demons by Beelzebul. And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore they will be your judges. But if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. End quote. Jesus has come to set the story straight. See, groups number two and groups number three, the, the critical and the skeptical, they simply aren't making sense. If Jesus is using Satan's power to get rid of demons, then that means there is like this demonic civil war happening. Besides that, God had enabled some Jews of that day to cast out demons. Not one of them would ever say or suggest that one of their own, one of their own sons, are casting out a demon using the power of Satan. They would never say that. But again, their critical and or skeptical words are not about facts. They're not about logic. They're not about reasoning. It's a matter of the heart. Now, Jesus uses a really specific and intentional phrase here. He says, finger of God. That phrase pops up three other times in the Bible. Two times it describes the writing of the Ten Commandments. But then there's one other time that feels a little bit more relevant to today's passage. We see it in the book of Exodus. We see it in the showdown between Moses and the magicians of Pharaoh. In our passage today, Jesus triumphs over evil. 
That is also what happened in Exodus 8. You see, God brought plagues onto Egypt to rescue his people. Early on, the Egyptian magicians are able to do some of the same things, it says, with their secret arts. Now, if they were able to turn a staff into a serpent, turn water to blood, made frogs appear, you gotta bet they were able to do so through the power of demons. Here's what we see here. There are two kingdoms. There is Satan's kingdom and there is God's kingdom. Satan's kingdom is real. Demons are real. They have empowered people to do crazy things that have even been mistaken as magic. They torment people. They possess people. They are real. They are powerful. And they are entities that you've got no business seeking out. But God's kingdom is real too. And Jesus is telling them that the power of God on display for them shows that the kingdom of God has arrived. The finger of God before them shows them that God is up to something big and that they should want to be a part of it, not against it. Now, here's what a lot of people get wrong. They see the two kingdoms and they think they must be equal. You see, Hollywood twists our minds because we see all of this dualistic thoughts where good and evil are basically the same strength. And it's this intense battle to the end to figure out which one of these evenly matched foes is going to come up with the victory. But here, we're going to see that Jesus is going to clear all this up. Our last point of the day, Jesus is stronger than Satan. And we could push that further. God's kingdom is far greater than Satan's kingdom. Verse 21, quote, When a strong man, fully armed, guards his own palace, his goods are safe. But when one stronger than he attacks him and overcomes him, he takes away his armor in which he trusted and divides his spoils. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. End quote. Jesus is closing our section today with an illustration to really make his point. Now, verse 21 identifies a strong man fully armed. I'm going to let you know that strong man fully armed, that's talking about Satan. He is powerful. He has done so much harm to this world, to humanity. Just think of the harm Satan and his demonic forces has caused in the man that was mentioned earlier, the man that was unable to speak. Now, in John 12, Jesus refers to Satan as the ruler. In John 12, Jesus refers to Satan as the ruler of this world. I suppose that would mean that when Jesus says here in Luke 11, his own palace, that the world that we live in is regarded as Satan's own palace. There's no human being that can take on this strong man fully armed, but that's not the point. The point is not what can you do. The point is what has Jesus done? It's all about what Jesus can do. He is the one stronger who attacks. Let the listener understand, though Satan is the strong man fully armed guarding his own palace, but verse 22, but when one stronger than he attacks him and overcomes him, that is Jesus. Jesus is the stronger man. Jesus coming to earth to identify with us human beings. He lived a sinless life. He lived a righteous life. This was an invasion into Satan's kingdom. 
Way back in Genesis chapter 3, when Satan defeated Adam, who was supposed to be the under-ruler of this world. When I say under-ruler, I mean he ruled under God. So Adam was the original under-ruler of this world, but Adam fell. Adam rebelled against his creator, and because he did that, sin and death entered the world. Satan's kingdom developed a stronghold. Now, God, in Genesis chapter 3, thoroughly explained the consequences of what Adam and Eve had done. Yet in those consequences, he gives a glimmer of hope. He introduces a theme that would stretch all the way from Genesis chapter 3 to the end of Revelation. It is hope. You see, in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, we're going to see what would later be called the Proto-Evangelion, or in English, the first gospel proclamation. Verse 15 says this, quote, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. End quote. Jesus was coming to defeat the strong man through his own injury, through his own pain, through his own suffering. Jesus is greater than Satan. When Jesus hung on the cross, drawing his last breath, it may have looked as though Satan won. But in reality, Jesus was fulfilling Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, along with so many other Old Testament references. It is through his own pain, his own suffering, that he would conquer. Through Satan's weapon, death itself, Christ claimed victory over the evil one. Remember what Jesus told Peter in Matthew 16, verse 18, quote, And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it, end quote. Now think about it, folks. What are gates? Would you use a gate for offense or for defense? Now I'm going to tell you, I am not a weapons expert. But I can tell you there are a lot better weapons out there to choose from than trying to slam a gate into someone's head. Am I right? Gates are to keep things out. Gates are boundaries. Gates are to protect. So Jesus is telling Peter that through the church, he is building the kingdom of God that will grow. And not only will it grow, it will invade into the territory of Satan. They are not two equal sides. Jesus is stronger. Jesus was victorious in the wilderness when Satan tried to tempt him. He was victorious at the cross when Jesus paid for our sins. And he was definitely victorious when he got up from the grave. There is no one who can match Jesus' strength or his power, and there is no one who can love you like he can. Look, I know that when you go about in your day-to-day life, when you turn on the TV, when you look at your phone, you will see all kinds of crazy things, and it looks like Satan is winning. But let me tell you, he's not. Actually, his days are numbered. There will be a day when Jesus will cast Satan his demons, even death itself, into the lake of fire. Jesus has already secured the victory. You see, these two kingdoms are not equal. Jesus is the greater one. Jesus is the one who is stronger than any other. So let us not grow critical. Let us not grow skeptical. Let us recognize him for who he truly is and be awestruck. Thanks for listening to the Steadfast Podcast. I want to remind you that in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 58, Paul wrote this, quote, 
Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. End quote. So in light of biblical truth, let us be steadfast, immovable. Let us remember that through Jesus, not one labor is in vain, not one trial is in vain, not one effort in all of our lives is in vain. Because he gives purpose. And that purpose rings through eternity. That's all I've got for you today. Thank you so much for listening. And don't forget, if you've got questions you would like answered, you can email me at matt at steadfastpodcast.com.